All right, we're continuing our commentary on Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and we are now beginning Colossians chapter 3. In this session, we will look specifically at chapter 3, 1 through 11. And in this section, Paul begins by really drawing out the second implication of our baptism. Recall that, the, that he described our baptism as a death and resurrection with Christ in 2, 11 through 13. And in 2.20, then, he drew out the first implication of that as he applied this to the Colossian situation. He said, if you've died with Christ, and you have, then, he says, we're free from the elementary principles and the Old Testament rituals and all other religious rituals. That's the first implication why we don't need to let anyone judge us by those kinds of things and tell us that we have to keep those rules if we really want to know God or experience God. Here, beginning in Colossians chapter 3, he gives the second implication, the second reason, why we don't need to listen to those kinds of things. And he says, in essence, not only have we died with Christ, but we've also been raised with him and have new life that's capable of resisting fleshly desires and pleasing God. And so that's reason number two. Here's the way he says it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He writes, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Notice, again, we're, we have a therefore, so we're drawing out another statement of conclusion from what he had said previously. And that's why I say this is really the second implication about why we don't need to listen to those who are trying to judge us on the basis of all these man-made traditions or rules or rituals or whatever it is, that we don't need to listen to them. And so this is the second statement of conclusion about that. Uh, and he says, if you have been raised up with Christ, and recall in our previous session when he said, if you have been buried with Christ, if you've died with Christ, we said that the word if is the particular word that means more sense. If you have, and you have, it's not in doubt. There's two different words for if in Greek, and here we have the one that means if you've been raised up with Christ, and that's true, you have. Your, your baptism embodied that experience, expressed and portrayed and displayed that experience where you have identified with Christ and his resurrection life and his new life. So you've experienced the new life in Christ. If you've been raised up with Christ, then he says this is what you should do. Instead of listening to all those, instead of trying to put on all these religious rules, instead of self-abasement and harsh treatment of the body, here's what you should do. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so the orientation of our life, the ambition and pursuit of our life should be aimed towards Christ in heaven. That's what we should focus our life on. Keep seeking it. And that keep seeking is trying to capture the sense of the present tense in Greek, which that present tense has this sense of continuing action here, where this is something you keep on doing routinely and regularly and ongoingly. Keep seeking, keep pursuing the things above in contrast to the things below. So the things above and the things below really stand for not like spatial uh, places, right? Like don't think, oh yeah, Christ is up in heaven, so if I you know, got in a rocket ship and went out to Mars, took a left, and went about you know, 1,500 light years, I'd eventually find where Jesus is up there. That's not the point of above. The point is to contrast it with, with 
earth. In other words, the earthly way of doing things, the fallen way of doing things. There's God's way, the things above. There's heaven's realm and heaven's culture and heaven's values, the things above. And there's earth's values and earth's ambitions and earth's ways, the things below, the things on earth. And that's the contrast Paul is making here. And so the focus of our life should be on the things above where Christ is. And so he becomes the hub, the centerpiece of the vision of our life. And our life is aimed towards him. And we're constantly seeking after him, seeking after his things, seeking after his teaching, his priorities, his values, and the things that are important to him. So keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Notice that that Jesus has... Uh, not only been resurrected, but he's been exalted. Is that that's that picture? He's been exalted uh, and now enthroned at the right hand of God as God's right hand man, ruling over God's kingdom now, of which in Christ we have become a part. And so keep seeking his things, keep seeking his kingdom. Verse 2, he states the same really idea, but a little bit differently. He says, set your mind on the things above. So as you keep seeking those things, really the key thing you need to do is what you do with your mind. You set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And there's that explicit contrast. Things above, Jesus' things, God's things, heaven's things, the kingdom of God's things, the things on earth are the earth things, the earth values, the earth priorities, the earth's wants and desires and plans and agendas and ways of doing life. We set our mind on God's things. And so this has to primarily do with our mental orientation. Uh, as Dallas Willard is famous for pointing out, one of the the most basic things we can control as human beings that really impacts our whole life is what we allow to occupy our mind, what we set our mind on. And so the key responsibility, at least one of the key responsibilities we have for our own spiritual health and spiritual growth is what we fill our mind with, what we allow our mind to be occupied with. And so he says, set your mind on the things above. Um, and those things above are Christ's things, the things of Christ's kingdom, Christ's teaching, Christ's values. So we need to really fill our mind with the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of his apostles so that we understand what's really important to him. And we don't set our mind on the things on earth. We don't fill our mind with the values and the priorities and the standards and the agenda. That's just not what we allow to occupy our mind. Why not? Well, because Again, he restates really drawing out the implications of what he said, our baptism displayed and embodied, for you have died. When you became a Christian and you put your faith in Jesus, you died. You died to the old ways of life. You died to your old identity. You died to your past. You died to the things of this world. You died. And that's what happened. Our baptism embodied and displayed this death, this being buried uh, and being raised to a new kind of life, right? Paul states this sort of thing in a number of places in his letters. He even describes his own life this way. Very well-known text, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, right? Like, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the idea. I have been crucified with Christ. Romans 6, the same sort of thing. Again, in connection with 
What are baptism pictures and embodies there? That we have died to our old self, meaning the in Adam us, the fallen us in this fallen world. So you have died. That Notice it's an accomplished fact. Now you should die. He's going to get to that here in a little bit. Live who you are. He's going to get to that in a second. But here it's you have died. Like statement of a fact already accomplished. That's really important. This You have a brand new identity because you died to your old identity, your fallen identity. So you have died, and now your life is, again, statement of fact, hidden with Christ and God. So you have a brand new identity that's wrapped up in Christ and in God. And it's not fully clear what all that means and how all that's going to play out yet. That's the reason he uses the word hidden. We see glimpses of it by faith. We experience glimpses of it by faith. We know more what it is because of our faith in Jesus. To the world, we just look like everybody else, right? They can't see anything glorious and heavenly about us, but it's true because of what God has done for us in Christ through the Spirit. So it's hidden with Christ in God, but verse 4 says, when Christ is revealed, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. So Christ now is the very essence of our life. It's what our life is all tied up with. So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, meaning when he returns again, when he comes again, when the curtain is pulled back, and all of a sudden Jesus in all his glory is seen, and his kingdom comes in fullness, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The glory that we have as the children of God, as those in Christ, will someday be manifest fully and completely when Christ returns again. Even though now we only see it in part, I mean, maybe we only experience it in part, and we know it maybe more fully than anyone else can tell, it's true about us. Someday it's going to be made completely clear and obvious when Christ comes again. So, verses uh, one through four really summarized, we have this new identity that leads to a new ambition and a new focus of our life. That is, our life is caught up in Christ and his kingship and his kingdom and his glory. And our life now is focused on him and his things. That's who we are. That's our identity. Verse five then shifts to basically saying, so live that now. Live out who you are. You've been given this identity. You've been given this status. You've been given this destiny and this future. Now, right now in the present, begin to live that out. And so verses 5 through, really 5 all the way on for almost the rest of the letter, but for our purposes in this session, 5 through 11 focuses on this idea of living who you are. Um, we are like citizens of a new country and we haven't yet been kind of normalized and situated in all its customs and values and ways of life and so we have this new citizenship as uh, members of Christ's kingdom and we've got to learn how to live that out now and so Paul begins to describe how this new life in Christ now plays out in our lifestyle so it's really important you keep the order in mind you're not living out this ethical teaching so that you can become something in Christ. You already are in Christ and are new in him. You've been raised up with him and have a new life. You already have that. Now, begin to live that out. That is, live who you are. And so, he says this in verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. 
Before we look at the list of things he mentions there, the list of vices that he describes, we need to really wrestle with the translation at the first part of verse 5. Uh, he says, therefore, in this translation, which is the New American Standard, therefore, consider the members of your body as dead. Um, and that uh, is really an interesting translation. I'm just not so sure it does justice to the strength of the language. Actually, this is one place where I think the NIV is better, uh, even though it's more of a dynamic equivalent translation than a more literal formal equivalent translation like we have in the ESV or here, the New American Standard. But I think the NIV is better. It says, put to death. And that's more what the, the Greek language says here. We're not so much talking about thinking, consider, right? Like, con think about these things as if they were dead. That's not really what Paul is saying here. He's saying, put them to death. That's the, what the, the force of the language really is. And so, put them to death. So let's let's read it that way. I think that's that's more in keeping with the force of the language here. Put these things to death. Uh, you have died. You have been raised. This is who you are. The tension is, even though you're dead to your old identity, and even though you're alive to God in Christ, sin isn't dead, and your old habits haven't fully died yet, and certainly the fallen culture around you isn't dead, and it still tempts you, it still calls to you, it still woos you and tries to get you to do some things that now in Christ you know are wrong. So you've got to put those things to death. You've got to drive the stake through their heart and execute those things. That's the idea. Therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body. Um, what does he mean? Well, put to death the parts of your earthly body. Paul this is a really big part of Paul's theology. When we get to our commentary on Romans, we will explore this more fully and more completely in Romans 6 and 7. But Paul understood that though we've experienced, like, if you will, phase one of our resurrection, we're still awaiting phase two of our resurrection. Phase one gives new life to us deep within in our soul and our spirit, right? Like we're new creations in Christ. We have been raised up with Christ. We have new life. Paul says this kind of stuff all over the place in his letters. So resurrection life is at work in us, but we haven't experienced the resurrection of the body yet. And so there's this sort of tension between what we have in part, we don't have in full. It's the tension between what theologians call the already and the not yet. We've already been raised up with Christ, but we're not yet fully resurrected because we still have our same fallen, broken down, tending towards death sort of body. And that body has learned all sorts of bad habits through years of sinning. And that body is prone to learning new bad habits because of the fallen world around us that still appeals to it. And so we're going to have to we're going to have to retrain this body for the sake of righteousness. This is everywhere present in uh, Paul's ethical instructions in the New Testament, and we have that here. So put to death the parts of your body. In other words, what he's saying is take radical action to make sure your body doesn't give in to its former bad habits that it learned through years of sinning. Put those things to death. And then he begins to describe the kinds of things that we need to make sure we execute, we put to death. It's these sorts of vices. It's not that the body is bad. That's really important. The body is good, right? When God created human beings, flesh 
and all, body and all. He said, this is very good, right? Like he made this world good, including our body. We're going to have a resurrected body forever. So physicality is good. It's not bad. It's that it has been corrupted and has therefore become less than what it's supposed to be. And so now by the help of the spirit, we're going to have to retrain this body to do what's right. So put to death the parts of your earthly body to things like, and he lists them off, immorality. Immorality actually is the word we get our word pornography from. It refers to any illicit sexual activity. So execute that. Put that to death. Impurity just means anything that's dirty, unclean. Like we talk about that, dirty jokes, right? Like dirty language, dirty movies, dirty stories. It's the same sort of idea here. Put put uh, to death dirty things. Um, passion. In this context with immorality and dirtiness, passion refers to like like out-of-control sexual desire primarily. It could refer to other kinds of passions, other kinds of desires. But primarily in this context, since we have two words that often are associated with, with dirty sexuality, corrupt sexuality, it probably primarily means um, like out-of-control sexual desire, sexual passion that's just running rampant like a wildfire and, and stirring up within like a, you know, a boiling cauldron kind of thing. Put that to death. Get rid of that. You need to have your sexual desire be under control and all other passions and desires really be under the control of God by the Spirit as well. Evil desire, like any sort of desire for wrong things, bad things, including illicit sexual desire and other sorts of wrong desires. And then he mentions greed. And so we've kind of shifted as we've gone down the line from just purely sexual uh, wrongdoing to other sorts of just covetousness, right? Like where you just want things that don't belong to you and you're you're jealous of other people and you want what they have and now it begins to stir up all these desires within you. And so put those things to death within you. Um, he says those, those things, particularly greed here, greed amounts to idolatry. It's like, uh, it's not like a, a little statue that you're worshiping, but this helps us realize that idolatry is bigger than just literally worshiping of a little statue. It is uh, ultimately, idolatry is when a, a, a good thing even becomes an ultimate thing. When anything tries to take the place of God in our life, where we have to have it to be uh, satisfied, to be happy, to be whole, we've got to have that thing, well, it becomes idolatry. And so when even a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it, it becomes a bad thing. That's the way Tim Keller puts it, and it's a really helpful way to think about it, that Good things themselves can become bad things when they become ultimate things. And so get rid of those things. Put to death any form of idolatry, even this more vague and less uh, concrete kind of idolatry that shows up in the form of greed and evil desire and all of that. He says in verse 6, It's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Notice that, that... Um, he, literally, he says, it's, it's because of these things, the wrath of God comes. It doesn't even have the future. He's saying, in, in effect, th this stuff just is like a magnet for the wrath of God. It draws God's wrath to it. And so Paul believed in a future ultimate day of wrath, a judgment day, when God would justly and rightly uh, deal with the evil of this world and the evil that's within humanity, that he would hold all people accountable for their behavior and justice would finally come. He, he believed that. He also believed that sometimes God's wrath was even experienced in the course of history. You see that, for example, in Romans chapter 6, where 
Paul says, God gave them over to wallow in the mire that they created for themselves there in Romans 1.26. And so Paul just believed that God's wrath was a real thing. It was justice for uh, evil that ruined God's good creation that ultimately will culminate in a final day of wrath. So he says it's because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, upon those who are, are disobedient to God. And he says in verse 7, And in them also you once walked when you were living in them. Like This characterized your life. When your life was made up of these kinds of things, when it was made up of immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, and just the ways of the world, when your life was found in those things, well, that then it characterized your lifestyle. Um, and that was the way it used to be for his original audience, the Colossians. And for uh, people who didn't grow up with a knowledge of God, they didn't grow up with the scriptures, they grew up apart from God, that's just what their life was all about. That's how they found meaning and value in life and pleasure and joy was in those things, and their lifestyle was characterized by it. But he says in verse 8, now, but now, now you've moved, you've changed kingdoms, you're no longer in the kingdom of this world. That's no longer who you are, right? You're no longer that person. You're in Christ and you've been raised up with him. So now things have changed. But now you also, in verse 8, put them all aside. Now instead of using the imagery of executing them, putting them to death, he's actually going to begin using the language of like changing your clothes. In fact, he says here, take them off and set them aside and you'll have new clothes for us to put on beginning in verse 12. We'll look at that in the next session. So he uses, he shifts kind of his picture, his imagery he's using, but here it's like take off all these old clothes and get rid of them. That's not how you dress anymore. That's not what you wear anymore. That's the imagery of put them aside. So, and he lists off some more vices to put aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your your mouth. Um, anger and wrath obviously are very similar and they overlap in meaning. Um, the difference primarily is anger tends to focus on this particular word in Greek, orge, tends to focus on like a settled state, a life that just has it's you're just an angry person, we would say, right? Like there's just hostility and resentment under the surface, and there's just this kind of settled state of brewing anger, whereas wrath focuses on the outbursts of anger, the, the explosions of anger when we lose our temper. And so get rid of that. Get rid of anger. Get rid of angry outbursts and wrath. Malice has to do with evil intent. It has to do with wanting harm to come to somebody, wanting to hurt somebody. I sure hope they get theirs. That's malice. Get rid of that. Set that aside. Slander is speaking to degrade a person, to run somebody down, right? like gossiping and whispering accusations behind the scene, talking down somebody, running people down. Did you hear what he did or did you hear what she did? Slander and running people down to, to tear people down. Abusive speech from your mouth. Um, that that word actually is much more comprehensive in Greek. It's hard to capture it in English because it has sort of two sides to it. On one hand, it refers to just obscenities, suggestive statements, innuendos, right? On the other hand, it has to do with barbed words that are intended to wound, little verbal jabs, right? Like things you say that are intended to hurt, intended to poke, intended to kind of wound somebody. Get rid of all of that. 
get rid of all that. Now, when Paul uses these kinds of lists, scholars refer to these as like vice lists, immorality, impurity, anger, malice, wrath, right? Listing off various wrong deeds, vices. When Paul does this, he doesn't intend these lists to be comprehensive, right? He could throw in other things into these lists, and in other texts he does, right? Like, these are just some of the ideas. He's just throwing out a smattering of the kinds of things that really describe life on earth as it is in its fallenness. And we know this is true. All we got to do is like read the news, right? Like sometimes we just have to open up our, our Facebook or our Instagram feed and we're, we're seeing these sorts of things play out right in front of us on, on our social media feeds. Like he's just throwing out a random sample of the kinds of things that generally describe fallen human life. And what he tells us is put them to death, get rid of them, they don't belong with you because of who you are. You're now, you're now in Christ. You're now a member of Christ's kingdom. And so as you learn how to live as a part of Christ's family, there's new ways of operating, new ways of doing things. And these things no longer are appropriate. So get rid of them. Get rid of them, he says. In verse 9, he says, don't lie to one another. That's another thing that needs to go. No, we're truth people. Why? Because God is truth. We're made in God's image, so we're made to be full of truth. So don't lie. That goes against who God is and who you are. So don't lie to one another. Since you, notice what he says, since you laid aside the old self. Because of who you are now, because you've gotten rid of the old self, the, the old in Adam identity, the old fallen identity, that no longer defines you, that no longer describes you, now that no longer is who you are anymore. You set that aside. Since that's the case, don't lie to one another because lying is a part of the fallen way of doing things. It's not a part of God's way, the image of God's way of doing things, which is truth-telling because God is truth. So don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. It had a whole different way of operating but that's not you anymore. And notice verse 10, and have put on the new self. This is who you are. You've put on the new identity. You've put on the, the in Christ identity. That's who you are now. You've, you've put that on. So now you're learning to live who you are. Notice like, that's just consistent through this whole thing. You once were this, you're not anymore. You are now this. So live out who you are. Live your new identity. Live who you are. And this new self, he says, is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Notice that, that this new self in Christ is being renewed. And so we've put on the new self, and it needs continual renewal in order to really become everything it's designed to be. And, and the pattern for that renewal is um, the image of God, the image of the one who created him. So we're being renewed to a deep, true, real knowledge after the pattern of the very image of the one who created this new self, the image of our creator, the image of God himself. And so as those in Christ were experiencing this great renewal, and this renewal is after the pattern of God and the image of God, which we were made in originally. And so we're being restored to full humanity. When we get rid of anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying, um, idolatry, immorality, when we get rid of all those things, we're actually becoming more human. The more holy you are, the more human you are. The less holy you are, the less human you are. Because um, these sorts of things, immorality, anger, wrath, lying, all that, those destroy and tear down 
humanity. They tear down our humanness. They destroy the image of God in us, and God is now restoring us to the full image of God that we were made in originally and that we're becoming made back into by virtue of the work of God in Christ through the Spirit. And that renewal has not just individual behavioral implications, that renewal has kind of like corporate implications, like group implications. And so he turns to that in verse 11. He says, a renewal, in verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew. That was the two dominant racial distinctions in the first century world. There were Gentiles and there were Jews. There were Greeks and there were Jews. There was Jews and all non-Jews. So now, in this, in this kingdom of God in Christ, that distinction no longer applies. Um, you're either in Christ or you're not. And it doesn't matter your racial background, doesn't matter your heritage background, right? That distinction no longer applies. So there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. It's a, that's just another way of saying the same thing, Greek and Jew. So Jews were circumcised, uh, non-Jews were uncircumcised. Why does he restate it? Well, that that way of stating it is not purely primarily racial, it's primarily religious, right? Circumcised versus uncircumcised was the religious mark that made the distinction between them. And so um, your, your racial heritage, just cultural heritage, no distinction there. Your religious background, your religious heritage, circumcised, uncircumcised, that, that doesn't matter anymore. And then he lists off just some interesting ones, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. Barbarian and Scythian, those were people on the fringes of the empire. They were like the deep foreigners. They were the ones that, right, like when you hear barbarian, don't think of like Conan the barbarian. Um, it was, this word actually just meant people who didn't know Greek, people who were uncultured, uncouth, right? Scythians were these, this warfaring kind of uh, tribe of people out on the fringes of the Roman empire. They were like, Man, they were just so barbaric, so uncivilized, so uneducated. That distinction doesn't apply. Those people are welcome in Jesus' kingdom too. Slave and free, that's class distinction. The slave and the free man, um, you know, like slave being the lowest of the low, free man. And, you know, it's like better than a slave, right? Class distinctions. Those distinctions don't apply. So racial distinctions, religious distinctions, educational and cultural and uh, you know, and all of those kind of distinctions, class distinctions, none of it applies where this renewal is taking place. Where, where Jesus is king and where people have come into Christ, these distinctions no longer apply. But rather, the end of verse 11, Christ is all and in all. That's what matters. If you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, then we're family. Then we're one. We're members of the same kingdom. And so we need to learn to live together and peace and love and joy and harmony, which is where he's going to turn very shortly in the preceding verses. Uh, Christ is the centerpiece, and Christ is what matters. And so let's set our aim on Christ. Let's fix our gaze on Christ. Let's keep seeking uh, the things above where Christ is, right? Let's set our mind on the things above where Christ is, and let's, let's let Christ be all and all that measures everything, all our behavior, all our relationships, all our goals, all our ambitions. Christ is what matters. We pursue Christ. He is the centerpiece of our new life now that we have been raised up with him and we're alive in him. We set our gaze on Christ. We pursue Christ. Christ is all and is in all.